Greetings, this is Michael Basham on a windy, blustery October day. And we're going to go into some good news, some good gospel type of things, because the news of this world is so messed up and terrible. That just basically sums it up. All the Ebola stuff, all the preparing for the destruction of America and the takedown of the free world and the institution of a one-world antichrist government that's kind of a heavy thing to focus on all the time. But it should always be at the back of your mind. 
as you learn other things. Um, I'd like to get into some historical, just backdrop information, studying some of the ancient Christian church, the literature of some of our great Christians of old, if it's not too windy out here. But first I'd like to jump into a book called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. And this is a book that if you haven't read, I think I kind of envy you because it's like saying you never saw one of the best movies ever made and you get to look forward to going and seeing it. That's just so cool. This book is such a joy to read. It's almost as good as Everlasting Man, but I think G.K. Chesterton has written some of the greatest Christian literature ever. And uh, it's just so happy. It's so positive. It's so um, witty at tearing down all the lies and strongholds of the enemy. And uh, he was friends with a lot of the eugenicists of his day, pre-World War II. And he, a lot of what he said came true, and he called out all these things, the atheists and the evolutionists and the communists and the professors and the politicians and the bankers and the millionaires. And he was just saying it like it was. Um, and pretty much was vindicated. So much so that I believe that the modern educational Nazi establishment has just kind of tried to tuck him under the rug. And, you know, you can look at C.S. Lewis or whatever famous pastor, preacher nowadays, but don't you dare look at G.K. Chesterton. Don't you get the likes of his thinking in your mind because he, he was a counterculture kind of guy. But it's disguised in his prose. But I'm going to read some quotes here. I would read the whole book every day if I could. Orthodoxy. It's just one of the best books. But um, I think some of these quotes are going to speak for themselves here. And this is from a website. It's called goodreads.com. And they just have a bunch of his most famous quotes uh, posted here. All right. So it says, Love is not blind. That is the last thing that love is. Love is bound, and the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Pretty deep. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. May you take that quote as you go to heaven. You don't have to understand everything about the New Jerusalem or Space City or where it, where it is or anything like that. You just need to go there. Reason is itself a matter of faith. It is an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all. You know, I, I know some uh, American students here studying abroad, and they repeat this often. They're not sure what is reality. They, they, they question whether or not you can believe anything at all. So that's pretty cool. Just to be down to earth is, is an act of faith, basically. Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small... Yeah. Some bug just attacked me. Um, tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. He was always revolutionary the way he talked about tradition. And... Honestly, it's not the way people really handle tradition today. But it was getting back to the real roots of our faith and the real, real deepest um, foundation. And um, I'm going to look at the history of 
uh, Constant, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, and just some of the things that he did. Because, I mean, our whole tradition of going to church really started with him, with his basilica. And uh, that's going to be an interesting um, little study. I'm learning about it, too, so I just invite anybody who wishes to join me to come along. Ian Clayton mentions um, Constantine a lot, too, as the guy that said a lot of our false church doctrine today. Not that he was a bad guy, but he just didn't know much of what he was talking about. The main point of Christianity was this, that nature is not our mother. Nature is our sister. That is cool. Fairy tales make rivers run with wine, only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. The wildness of reality. According to most philosophers, God, in making the world, enslaved it. According to Christianity, in making it, he set it free. God had written not so much a poem, but rather a play, a play he had planned as perfect, but which had necessarily been left to human actors and stage managers, who had since made a great mess of it. That is so cool. Fairy tales say that apples were golden only to refresh the forgotten moment when we found out that they were green. They make rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. We just read that. It's a full quote there. So, you know, you got to stop and remember how wild the world is. Every little thing is crazy and cool and awesome. It is one thing to describe an interview with a gorgon or a griffin, a creature who does not exist. It is another thing to discover that the rhinoceros does exist and then take pleasure in the fact that he looks as if he didn't. Good. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic, lunatic asylums. Or universities. But the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never really be a revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything, for all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. And the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher, that all life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant, and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts, and then he takes his hat and umbrella and he goes on to a scientific meeting where he proves that they, are practically, they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in his revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. You could make a book of proverbs from G.K. Chesterton quotes. It's just like, huh? I never thunk that before. But it's true. All right, next one here. Take the case of courage. No quality has ever so much addled the brains and tangled the definitions of merely rational sages. Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it. This is so good. 
is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. It might be printed on an alpine guide or a drill book. The paradox is the whole principle of courage, even of quite earthly or brutal courage. A man cut off by the sea may save his life if we will risk it on the precipice. If he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is cut if he's got to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide. A su he will be suicidal and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. No philosopher, I fancy, has ever expressed this romantic riddle with adequate lucidity, and I believe have not done so, but Christianity has done more. It has marked the limits of it in the awful graves of the suicide and the hero, showing the distance between them, who dies for the sake of living, and him who dies for the sake of dying. Unbelievable. And I mean believable, but awesomely cool. Okay, one more, one more good one here. You got to read G.K. Chesterton. It really doesn't work to just read like one or two sentences of him. So, all the towering materialism which dominates the modern mind rests ultimately upon one assumption—a false assumption. It is supposed that if a thing goes on repeating itself, it is probably dead—a piece of clockwork. People feel that if the universe was personal, it would vary. If the sun were alive, it would dance. This is a fallacy, even in relation to known fact. For the variation in human affairs is generally brought into them, but not by life, but by death. By the dying down or breaking off of their strength or desire, a man varies his movements because of some slight element of failure or fatigue. He gets into an omnibus because he is tired of walking, or he walks because he is tired of sitting still. But if his life and joy were so gigantic that he never tired of going to Islington, he might go to Islington as regularly as the Thames goes to the Sheerness. Ooh, getting a little windy here speed and ecstasy of his life would have the stillness of death. The sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning, but the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. Now to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children, when they find some game or joke that they specially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life, because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. This is one of the greatest quotes ever. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again, to the sun, and every evening, do it again, to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. You know, it does say that um, the sun rejoices as a strong man to run a race in the Psalms. So, I mean, if the sun has feelings, all right. So it may be 
that God makes every day daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grow old, and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. Heaven may encore the bird who laid an egg. If the human being conceives and brings forth a human child instead of bringing forth a fish or a bat or a griffin, the reason may not be that we are fixed in an animal fate without life or purpose. It may be that our little tragedy has touched the gods, that they admire it from their starry galleries, and that at the end of every human drama, man is called again and again before the curtain. Repetition may go on for millions of years by a mere choice, and at any instant it may stop. Man may stand on the earth generation after generation, and yet each birth be his positively last appearance. Woo! And so, this concludes part one of G.K. Chesterton orthodoxy quotes. Hey, look at that guy. Because we're concerned here with discipleship and following God. Going into undiscovered territory, but what I've noticed when repeating things that are happening today and news and new discoveries, even spiritual ones, even um, prophecies and revelations like Terry Bennett's getting or, um, you know, Augusto Perez on True News with the whole, um, just, you know, we're seeing, we're going to see an, a revolution happen in America that will usher in the Antichrist government. So, you know, uh, what's his name? Rick Joyner. Rick Joyner just had a dream about um, great darkness and evil coming to the states through the border and we do need to be aware of that stuff but I think like giving yourself a bigger vision here that we're going to be ruling in the millennium that anybody who follows God basically is has a huge destiny like that it, uh, it goes to say it goes without saying that um, you want to know some of this uh, other stuff too get into the history and the wisdom and the literature and the art that we, we've been given.
Hello, thank you for joining us. This is Michael Basham. We're going to continue in some of the orthodoxy quotes with G.K. Chesterton, some of the most fantastic words spoken about the Christian religion, spoken in a very secular environment, surrounded by eugenicists, philosophers, and atheists. G.K. Chesterton is, of course, known to have written the book Everlasting Man, which uh, C.S. Lewis attributes to his conversion to Christianity. He is the antidote to a great variety of huge falsities and lies and false creeds and heretics of our modern age. Just as important today as he was nearly 100 years ago. One of the greatest novelists of our time, Michael Crichton, who recently passed away in 2009, um, in his very last novel, or next to last novel, yeah, I think it was his last novel, Next, it was called Next, about uh, genetic manipulation, in his bibliography stated that G.K. Chesterton, although some of his subject material was a little bit out of date, was one of the most amazing and prolific, just incredibly spot-on, unchallengeable writers. And this is not a direct quote, of course. You can go find the novel next and look at the bibliography. But when I read that, I was astounded to find that Michael Crichton, a staunch evolutionist, atheist, totally worldly novelist, at the very end of his life, wrote about G.K. Chesterton, a total Christian writer, absolutely just peppering and salting everything that he writes with Bible quotes and Christianity. And, and you know what? Michael Crichton, I believe, is in heaven right now. I've had dreams with him, and I've felt his presence. I'm not kidding, because, I mean, I spent my whole childhood reading his books, listening to the soundtracks of the movies that his books inspired, and I was in love with Michael Crichton. I mean, that was like my role model. That that guy, I'm going off on a tangent here, but if it weren't for Michael Crichton, I wouldn't be in Asia, because... He wrote a book called Rising Sun. First of all, I love dinosaurs, love Jurassic Park, totally sold on it. On a road trip with my parents, my parents are both musicians, and uh, we drove from Florida up to Michigan pretty much every summer. I found a copy of a Michael Crichton novel that was way over my head, way above my age for reading um, Rising Sun. And I read it. I think once or twice, uh, not really understanding it very well, but just being very blown away by just the, the flavor and the taste of this writer that just, he wrote this story with this, um, expert on all things, Japan, on the Japanese language, on Japanese culture, everything. And, uh, it was a little bit alien to me. I wasn't really like getting it all, but, um, about a year or so later, I think I'd read it again by then, but I was a sophomore in high school and I was taking a test, this SAT sort of test where you have to sit in a room absolutely silent and you have to focus on the material in front of you, something that most people in today's working environment don't have to do. No cell phones, no distractions. Um, and they asked the question, they said, please write a paragraph 
or three paragraphs rather, about one role model in your life and how he inspired you. And I was like, a role model? I don't think I have a role model. I mean, and it mentioned something about a, it could be a fictional character. So I was like, John Connor, because the guy's name turns out to be John Connor. Uh, in the book Rising Sun by Michael Crichton, a total expert on Japan, absolutely understands the Japanese. Watch the movie. You know, Rising Sun is actually not a bad movie. Um, the, the novel is fantastic. But in any case, um, Michael Crichton wrote this book that contained a, you know, fictional character, but who affected me so much that when I was writing this page about who I would like to be when I grew up, I found that if I could be anything, I would like to be just like John Connor to totally understand the Japanese culture and to just be able to go to Japan, learn all about their, uh, just everything about them that there is to know. And, um, and then when that test was over, I felt different. Like, I was like, you know what? I really actually do love Japan. I really kind of would like to go to Japan and learn Japanese and be like John Connor, even though he's not a real character. And, um, and that's exactly what happened, except I never learned Japanese that well. So many Nihongo wa hanasemasen, but at least it got me going in the right direction. It led to the next step, the next door that God opened in my life, and um, everything changed. So I'm just, all that to say, oh my gosh, it's already been five minutes, I've been rambling here. Michael Crichton, one of the most amazing novelists of our time. He, I believe, is in heaven today because of the likes of G.K. Chesterton and the faithfulness for this man surrounded by worldliness of H.G. Wells. You know, H.G. Wells, who wrote, uh, you know, War of the Worlds, The Time Machine. That guy was a total atheist, scientific dictatorship, eugenicist, you name it. He wrote a book called The New World Order. You look up The New World Order book, it's got H.G. Wells on the end of it. This guy was on the inside of all this New World Order globalist nasty garbage that we're facing today with all the people that fund Obama and the Clintons. And you you just name the nasty uh, eugenicist globalist billionaire or trillionaire, perhaps. And it's one of those guys, Bill Clinton. Uh, I'm sorry, Bill Gates. Um, anyway, Michael Crichton, if you want to know, you know what? Okay, I'm not even getting into G.K. Chesterton. Into his, I was going to read some quotes about it uh, from the book uh, Orthodoxy, but Michael Crichton, you can go on YouTube and you can look up Michael Crichton and add the word Clinton. There's only a handful of videos from him, by the way. Months before he died from sudden throat cancer. I mean, the guy was super healthy, looking like he was in his prime and his last days of his life. Um, a doctor, you know, super smart, absolutely focused, maybe a little bit naive in the sense that he probably didn't understand the extent of the corruption in high places. I mean, the guy was the most famous novelist in all of American history. Just, you can look up uh, Michael Crichton, Hillary Clinton, or Global Warming, and you'll find that he 
is facing in the Senate Hillary Clinton arguing about global warming. And Hillary Clinton has her whole countenance. She's just flaring up like this witch and just saying like, you little man are nothing. You are nothing but a little novelist of sci-fi novels. And who are you to question global warming? Because he had just written a novel called State of Fear, which absolutely criticized global warming and made it out to be the hoax and the garbage that it really is. Now you won't even see all these uh, sold-out media people writing the word global warming. They'll use the word climate change because obviously the world is getting colder now because the sun cooled down and the sun can... The sun is what affects the weather more than... Um, you know, CO2 emissions or humans. I mean, we could probably affect it a little bit, but every time a, a, a volcano erupts, it erupts with just thousands of tons of CO2. <laughs> you know, they never talk about that. It's all, oh, you know, you've got to pay your carbon tax. And uh, you go back to 2008, look at the, uh, the um, timeline, to use another term. Michael Crichton wrote a book called Timeline about time travel. Really cool. But you look at the timeline of the globalist agenda in 2008, the year that Michael Crichton died, was probably the end of 2008, probably 2009, sorry. But in the summer of 2009, they started to push this whole carbon tax. Um, what were they called? It was going to be the new global currency, actually. And at Copenhagen, um, the globalists tried to push this thing, and it got exposed. It was totally leaked and brought out into the open that the whole thing was fake and garbage and people learned about it and they lost. That battle was lost. It could have started a long time ago that we would have been living in a global government dictatorship of, you know, Mark of the Beast style, um, you know, totalitarian, Naziistic, communistic, antichrist government. But because the information got out, um, Basically, that fell through, and they lost billions and billions of dollars pushing that whole carbon tax thing back in 2009. Michael Crichton died exactly just a few months before that whole thing. And um, I believe that in some, in some ways, although, I mean, he was a kind of a worldly guy, and I don't know his last words on his deathbed or his confession, but I believe that he was saved and that he was received into the heavenly places and... Um, I've had a couple of dreams with him. One dream, he was living in this beautiful, sweet-looking, kind of interestingly architected cottage on the edge of a just gorgeous blue sea. And I remember going there and talking with him in this very vivid dream. And I don't remember what transpired, but in any case, I woke up feeling very peaceful, like I'd just been to heaven, basically, or some part of heaven. Heaven is huge, by the way. You don't have to be some kind of like devout Christian to go to heaven. You just receive the Lord and, um, and people are always arguing, well, once saved, always saved. Or once you become a sinner, you're going to hell and that's it. There's no two ways about it. But um, heaven is very big and God's grace is very big too. But if you want to get rewarded when you go to heaven, you've got to give your life to God and just live for him and give him everything you got. Love him with all your worth and have a relationship with him. But you know what? His love for us is so great. 
he's not like some kind of a mean schoolmaster looking at you like ready to swat you and throw you in a hell if you just at the very last moment of your life you become a sinner and forgot to repent that's just legalism but um anyway i just i mean i'm just pointing out because i just listened to mike parsons talk about how he doesn't pray to get people saved anymore but he talks about letting people meet the lord and have a real experience with him and then he considers that salvation well maybe i'll probably just do both i'll probably ask people to pray the prayer of salvation and to meet the lord in in reality and mention that jesus is going to manifest to them in some way in their life and you know i think both are good i risk it but in any case um michael Crichton, i believe is in heaven uh another dream i had with him he was uh, instructing me and my sister to, uh, it was this really elaborate plot to somehow avenge his death because he'd been murdered. And we knew, we knew this. We were one of the few people that somehow knew that he'd been murdered and he wanted to, um, have us get involved in this elaborate kind of like way of, uh, of kind of vindicating his death. It was a very interesting dream. Um, I don't remember the details of that dream either, but I'm just saying I think he was murdered. Um, I think his death has been very ignored. Like, um, the people that used to read Michael Crichton, Crichton novels, they're probably a little bit older now, and they're probably a little bit distracted now, and writers are usually not so uh, paraded as movie stars or people that put themselves out there in the limelight. And there's very few interviews with Michael Crichton. There's very few uh, videos that you can find with him. So, but um, this is going out there, I guess, just to, just to say, you know what, Michael Crichton, you're still needed. And you know what? Someday I want to finish my novel I'm writing and I wouldn't mind your help, Michael Crichton. So I know that sounds crazy, but He's got a lot of talent. He's written tons and tons of novels. The guy is a genius. I love the way that he sets up his books with just a few characters in an isolated scientific environment. And he teaches you about the corruption of mankind. And even with our greatest achievements of technology, we still fall short and we still are sinful and screw everything up. And I love the fact that at the very end of his life, he discovered G.K. Chesterton and... I mean, maybe that was maybe that was God's grace that he just took him home. You know, I don't know. But in any case, praise the Lord, G.K. Chesterton and our very own modern G.K. Chesterton, Michael Crichton. Let us continue into the future and carry the torch because they passed on, but we're still on this planet. And by golly, we're going to carry forth the torch of revolution. So, amen. Thanks for joining us.
This time we're really going to get into the quotes by G.K. Chesterton from the book Orthodoxy, written a long, long time ago, but still more needed than ever, still more fitting to our age than most books that are published today. So listen to this, that a good man may have his back to the wall is no more than we knew already, but that God could have his back to the wall is a boast for all insurgents forever. Christianity is the only religion on earth that has felt that omnipotence made God incomplete. Christianity alone felt that God, to be holy God, must have been a rebel as well as a king. Alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. For the only courage worth calling courage must necessarily mean that the soul passes a breaking point and does not break. In this, indeed, I approach a matter more dark and awful 
then it is easy to discuss, and I apologize in advance if any of my phrases fall wrong or seem irreverent, touching a matter which the greatest saints and thinkers have justly feared to approach. But in the terrific tale of the passion, there is a distinct emotional suggestion that the author of all things, in some unthinkable way, went not only through agony, but through doubt. It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. No, but the Lord thy God may tempt himself. And it seems as if this was what happened in Gethsemane. In a garden, Satan tempted man. And in a garden, God tempted God. He passed in some superhuman manner through our human horror of pessimism. When the world shook and the sun was wiped out of heaven, it was not at the crucifixion, but at the cry from the cross, the cry which confessed that God was forsaken of God. And now let the revolutionists choose a creed from all the creeds and a God from all the gods of the world, carefully weighing all the gods of inevitable recurrence and of unalterable power. They will not find another God who has himself been in revolt. Nay, the matter grows too difficult for human speech. But let the atheists themselves choose a God. They will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation. Only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. I don't remember that quote, man. That That is crazy, man. So G.K. Chesterton, they always say, oh, the man of the... Of the, uh, oh my gosh, what's the word? Paradox. The man of the paradox. All the things that G.K. Chesterton wrote somehow tied back into just setting the sun and the moon and the stars upside down, everything backwards, forwards, and then bringing it back to the truth of the Bible and just bringing the fresh light of the gospel as you've never seen it before. And that quote just consummates everything that G.K. Chesterton has ever done in his whole life. can't believe it only got 33 likes. Man, there must be not too many people reading G.K. Chesterton these days. So these are just taken from the book Orthodoxy. I recommend reading the book all the way through. Um, quoting G.K. Chesterton makes you sound smart and looks cool. But really, you miss out on the full impact of his writing if you don't read a whole G.K. Chesterton book all the way through. And uh, Everlasting Man, amazing book. Heretics, absolutely famous. Orthodoxy, must read. St. Thomas Aquinas, another really good one, especially if you live in Asia. Uh, the one he wrote about St. Francis, it's amazing. Uh, he wrote a book called New Jerusalem. Really, really good. His essays are beautiful. Some other books he's written. Oh, The Man Who... The Man Called Thursday? Or The Man Who Was Called Thursday? I'm sorry. I'm so tired right now. I don't even have time to stop and think these days. It's been such a busy, busy, busy day. But this is so good that even with the press of time and the pressure of your life and the daily necessities... 
I can't let a day go by without getting into the Word of God, getting into prayer, getting into um, communion with the truth. And I'm not a very devout Christian. I'm a total sinner, totally worldly, completely, you know, evil as the sun, well, as wicked as, what is that term? Anyway, I'm just a wicked sinner who needs Jesus as much as anybody. But, um, if I miss out on my time with the word, I feel I am absolutely lacking in my, in my life. And, um, GK Chesterton is a guy that absolutely opened new doors in my life and just showed me that truth could be so radical and so fresh and so unlike you were told when you were a kid that, Oh, you know, religion is this way. So, uh, some of his material is a little outdated as Michael Crichton mentioned, but, um, not the religious part. Absolutely not the Christian part. So, all right, let's read another quote here. My gosh, I'm rambling on again. This is what happens at the end of a long day. It was a good day, but it was a long day. That Jones shall worship the God within him turns out ultimately to mean that Jones shall worship Jones. Let Jones worship the sun or moon or anything rather than the inner light, capitalized inner and capitalized light. Let Joan worship cats or crocodiles, if he can find any in his street, but not the God within. Christianity came into the world firstly in order to assert with violence that a man had not only to look inwards, but to look outwards, to behold with astonishment and enthusiasm a divine company and a divine captain. The only fun of being a Christian was that a man was not left alone with the inner light, but definitely recognized an outer light, fair as the sun, clear as the moon, terrible as an army with banners. It's quoting a little section of the Song of Solomon there. Beautiful. It just goes to show, whenever you meet somebody that's like, well, I don't have any religion, but I believe in myself. You know what? That person is more insane than all the pagans that used to just worship cats in Egypt. And it's no wonder. I mean, everybody's obsessed with zombies now. There's a guy that got run over by a car pretending to be a zombie in the middle of the road. It was a hit and run. People are obsessed with zombies with this show called The Walking Dead, which, thank God, I didn't watch that whole series. My friend really likes it, so I watched the first episode of the new season half of it. It was just absolutely grotesque, horrible, demonic, disgusting, not even that entertaining. Like I used to enjoy like old Resident Evil games, like the real zombie, uh, the original zombie games. And and these new, these new shows are just disgusting. Anyway, continuing on, white is not a mere absence of color. It is a shining and affirmative thing as fierce as red. As definite as black, God paints in many colors, but he never paints so gorgeously. I had almost said so gaudily as when he paints in white. That's a quote that needs to be read in context. because There's no way G.K. Chesterton would just say that without a huge setup and a huge finale, but still quite an interesting quote. Okay, here's a good quote. Art is limitation. The essence of every picture is the frame. If you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. 
if in your bold, creative way you hold, you hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you will really find that you are not free to draw a giraffe. Hmm. Okay, it's cool. He starts getting in these... He gets into the whole philosophical idea of limiting yourself as an artist in the way that God did that to become Jesus. And so many amazing paradoxes in Christianity. It's so cool. Poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and so make it infinite. The result is mental exhaustion. I love this quote. To accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything, a strain. And when he says accept everything, I believe it doesn't mean false things. I think it means the truth. Pause, gotta cough. Okay, done coughing. This is a very interesting quote, and it makes me think about something completely random that nobody's going to know, unless they have a lot of free time. But I was frightfully fond of the universe and wanted to address it by a diminutive. I often did so, and it never seemed to mind. Now, recently, there was a guy named Tolik, this New Age guy, just going on the internet, talking all this New Age stuff about these Andromeda Council people from space coming to Earth in the year 2013. And uh, his revelations were very, very specific. And some of his predictions came true about certain earthquakes taking place. And it was very interesting. It caught a lot of attention. But I was kind of like, what is this? You know, I didn't, he didn't touch religion at all. So I just kind of heard him out, listened to, it was very entertaining, I have to admit. Um, and one day I decided I'm going to take a prophecy trip because I was sitting in an office all day and I was being paid to basically do very, very easy work that didn't take very long. And then I needed to look busy the rest of the time. So I just decided, well, as long as I'm typing, I can get something done and I can, you know, also look like I'm working. So, and I was, and I, I typed out, I wrote out an entire, um, revelation journey, a spirit trip, if you will to uh, go and visit this place and that Tolik was talking about and see what it really was. And I found out that this guy, this, I guess he practices law somewhere. He's definitely got a Northern accent. He's probably from Michigan or Canada or something. But um, I found out that, that there was some truth to what he was saying, but that there was also an antichrist element, a kind of a demonic satanic thing that was in the middle of everything that he was revealing and it was a very tricksy sort of thing. But the way I wrote it all out, the way I could do it was I just exercised my mind to think as if it was a 2D video game, like an RPG. Like if anybody's ever played Final Fantasy, they'll know what I'm talking about. Most probably most people won't know what I'm talking about. But, um, and I just tried to, to go through the, the motions of the spirit and going to this land, not trying to explain everything or see everything, but just dimun, dim, what's the word he used? Um, diminutive. Kind of shrink it down to a very small level that's very easy to just go through. 
and accomplish more. And um, it took a few hours. I think at the very least it would make an interesting short story. And in the end, um, a few days later, I noticed that this guy, he wasn't talking anymore. And then a few, a few weeks went by, and then a few months went by, and then a year went by, and then another year went by. And the guy has not come out with a single new revelation from his, you know, so-called benefactors of space. Um, Tolek, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what happened to him. Maybe he just got distracted and it was good timing. But I always look back at that as like kind of similar to what Mike Parsons is doing. Like, you know, the court system and going into heaven and exercising things from our throne and just working in the spirit and doing things like that. And... I thought, you know what, when I was writing that, I really felt like I was just making, I was exercising my imagination. But I was invoking the name of Jesus. I was asking for God to send me his angels and to do something in the spirit. I was trying to, to interface with what this new age guy was bringing about. And in the end, I noticed that maybe the timing was just right or maybe something actually happened. But in just humble and I, I don't want to use the word imaginative, but just visualizing your prayers and taking one step at a time and going into the spirit realm as a, as a bride, as a Christian, as one of the sons of God, you name it, you can get a lot done. And um, I don't go to the courts that much, but I definitely noticed that in the outer courts, there's a lot of action going on and it's fun to go in there and do stuff. So... Someday I'll probably have the courage to share the details of that, but in any case, sorry to go off on a tangent, we'll be right back.
Hello, welcome. Thank you for coming to this weird place of the internet called the Spirit Wars Basham Report with Michael Basham reporting to you a great many things, a great deal of different things, because I don't know where to start with all the things that God has done in my life and where he's leading all of us. And um, right now we're going through G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, because I don't have the time of day to read the whole book myself or read it online. But I found a great deal of very nice quotes from the book, and um, I'm getting kind of fed from these too. So and the reason I'm reading these is for one reason. It's because when I read G.K. Chesterton in Japan back when I was 20 years old, um, it absolutely set me free from so many garbage church doctrines. And I was just ready to receive the full reality of whatever God had for me. I was just like, clean slate, blank sheet of paper. God, just do whatever you want in my life. I, I've been to a million churches. I know that the churches are wrong. I know that's not what you're like. I know that the Bible is true, but I know that the churches have no clue about the Bible. And this is so fresh. This is so new. I want more of you. I want more of just who you really are. Not what church people think because of man's traditions and attitudes and it was such a good thing. It was, it was sad in a way. It was a very lonesome period of my life where I didn't really have too many friends that agreed with me. But in the midst of that time, that's when I met the family. I met a girl that was raised in the family that uh, carried around in her purse in Tokyo, the dark and lonely city, these activated magazines. And she would just share with anybody the words within them and be a witnesser and being a a light in the deepest darkness and if anybody has ever been an example to me as a as a real disciple as what a, a disciple can be in our day and age it was her her name was uh stella Aichan. she was an amazing per i mean she is still she's an incredible incredible japanese girl that introduced the family to me through miraculous means. Um, when I met her, I realized this girl has a lot more spiritual power than I do. And I've been raised in, you know, the covenant or whatever remained of the covenant groups, um, understanding of spiritual warfare and all that stuff. You know, if anybody's ever heard of Steve Quayle, they'll know what I'm talking about. Steve Quayle, Derek Prince, Don Basham, that's my family. That's where I'm coming from. And yet I want more. Steve Quayle is pretty cutting edge. There's a new um, there's a new interview with Steve Quayle and Alex Jones that I greatly recommend listening to. It's all about the Ebola virus and what's happening with that. And yet, as cutting edge as Steve Quayle is, don't you want more? Like, don't you want to know what God has up his sleeve to face those super soldiers and the Illuminati when they finally unleash their reign of terror and hell upon the world, which they're trying to do, and they've been trying to do it. Like Pinky in the Brain or Name Your James Bond villain. They've been trying to destroy the world for a long time. Issue in this whole Great Tribulation period. And yet they've been foiled. I don't know why. I mean, it could have happened years ago. It could have started before I was even born. Maybe that's just been the grace of God. 
that the end of the world hasn't started yet, but it hasn't. And it is so ready to start. I mean, if not this year, very probably next year. And if not next year, very probably the year after that. It's just like, we are on the precipice. And uh, you should still live your life preparing for the next year as if it wasn't going to start. But you'd also live your life preparing as if it was going to start. Now, that sounds very paradoxical, but that's why we're reading G.K. Chesterton here. And I'm going to really read G.K. Chesterton, and I'm going to stop talking. Okay, G.K. Chesterton, here we go. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. Man, that's so true. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. The old humility was a spur that prevented a man from stopping, not a nail in his boot that prevented him from going on. For the old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder. But the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which will make him stop working altogether. I meet a lot of people from England, and I, I feel like, in a way, they're a lot more Christian, even the atheists, than a lot of the Christians that you meet in, in the United States. Because they lack that kind of weird puritanical self-righteousness that you meet in a lot of Christians in the States, a lot of church Christians. And um, I'm thinking about a couple in particular that I've, I've met in my program here in Asia that are learning Chinese. And just pray for them. I, You know, I really, I have a lot of faith in the English people. They just... They have a humility that that can be that can be greatly um, resuscitated or um, can be revived. All right, let's keep going here. I said to him, "Shall I tell you where the men are who believe most in themselves? For I can tell you, I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar." I know where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. Hey, I've met super soldiers. And I've followed some of their workings on YouTube and they would go to super, they would go to lunatic asylums. And yet all that Nazi training of the third generation super soldiers that G.K. Chesterton warned us about almost 100 years ago, it all came true and it's been progressing until today, 2014. If we are bound to improve, we need not trouble to improve. The pure doctrine of progress is the best of all reasons for not being a progressive. It's so cool to hear like the Hagman and Hagman report, Sheila Lozinski, Selinski, sorry, um, getting into this really, really pure.
pure doctrine of progressives in the United States right now. It's like this is the hottest news today, and it was the hottest news 80 years ago. Okay, here's one of my favorite quotes. If a man would make his world large, he must always be making himself small. I've always been obsessed with movies like um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, getting into the, the land of fairy tales in your everyday normal life. I've, I've always thought that would be so cool to become tiny or really, really small, to make the whole world around you become a giant wonderland of impossibilities of giants and huge objects that you can barely deal with. We get so familiar with our outside world. And um, anyway, I think he's talking about humility here, but I can't be sure. It's kind of a small little sentence taken out of context. But all right. I have never been able to understand where people got the idea that democracy was in some way opposed to tradition. It is obvious that tradition is only democracy extended through time. It is trusting to a consensus of human voices, of common human voices, rather than some isolated or arbitrary record. Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. Just look at the Chinese. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Isn't that cool? Like, doesn't that just totally turn tradition upside down? Like, you used to, you, you're used to thinking, like, okay, anybody that's traditional is obviously not with the times. You know, a traditional Christian is obviously a not very cool Christian. But now what we're finding out is that the traditional miracle-working preachers and Christians are the ones that were the most revolutionary. And if you think about it, Asia is the most futuristic part of the world today. You know, the West is in decline, Europe is in decline, America's totally dead, basically. Cities are just rotting out from underneath, like they're bulldozing half of Detroit. They're converting churches into mosques in Detroit. And uh, no offense to Muslims, but it's it's obvious that there are some very extremist, warlike Muslims that are infiltrating the U.S., that are preparing for some major, giant terrorist attacks, and that our own government is behind it, and that they're funding and supporting ISIS and helping to decapitate Christians and torture children in front of their parents and doing all this horrible stuff in uh, the Middle East, and that all that... All that evil garbage that we've been supporting is going to come back to the United States. It doesn't matter how ignorant you are. If you keep sowing garbage like that, it's going to come back on you. So it's one reason I left. But anyway, moving on with G.K. Chesterton. The point is not that this world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is that when you do love a thing, its gladness is a reason for loving it and its sadness a reason for loving it more. Okay, let's see the context of that quote. The believers in miracles accept them, rightly or wrongly, because they have evidence for them. 
The disbelievers in miracles deny them, rightly or wrongly, because they have a doctrine against them. Man, atheists are the most religious people I've ever met in my whole life. Worse than church Christians. Sometimes. But this is the real objection to that torrent of modern talk about treating crime as a disease. About making prison merely a hygienic environment like a hospital. Of healing sin by slow scientific methods. The fallacy of the whole thing is that evil is a matter of active choice, whereas disease is not. Interesting. Okay. Let us suppose that we are confronted with a desperate thing, say, Pimlico. I have no idea what that is. If we think what is really best for Pimlico, we shall find the thread of thought leads to the throne of the mystic and the arbitrary. It is not enough for a man to disapprove of Pimlico. In that case, he will merely cut his throat or move to Chelsea. Nor certainly is it enough for a man to approve of Pimlico, for then it will remain Pimlico, which would be awful. The only way out of it seems to be for someone to love Pimlico, to love it with transcendental tie and without any earthly reason. If there arose a man who loved Pimlico, then Pimlico would rise in ivory towers and golden pinnacles. If men love Pimlico as mothers love children arbitrarily, because it is theirs, Pimlico in a year or two might be fairer than Florence. Some readers will say, this is a mere fantasy. I answer that this is the actual history of mankind. This, as a fact, is how cities did grow great. Go back to the darkest roots of civilization, and you will find them knotted around some sacred stone or encircling some sacred well. People first paid honor to a spot and afterwards gained glory for it. Men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. I was just thinking about Rome. You know, Rome started with these weird connections to Mars and all things. I wonder. Okay, two more quotes, then we're done. And my haunting instinct that somehow good was not merely a tool to be used, but a relic to be guarded, like the goods from Crusoe's ship. Even that had been the wild whisper of something originally wise. For according to Christianity... We were indeed the survivors of a wreck, the crew of a golden ship that had gone down before the beginning of the world. I remember that Robinson Crusoe part. That is an awesome, awesome chapter. You got to read this. Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. Gotta love him. G.K. Chesterton. God bless.
Before many witnesses, before many witnesses, fight. 